Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 6. No Paul, no money, no Christmas. On the outskirts of town, we moved into a little bungalow, which was one of several forming a horseshoe pattern against a woodsy backdrop. The limbs of a very large tree in the backyard propped up a broken yet slightly functional treehouse. On the east side of the house, a dried-up riverbed carved its way through the thick forest of trees. The neighbors warned us to be careful in the riverbed because it had a quicksand pit. That was all we needed to hear, and soon enough, it became our favorite place to play. We were the type of children who enjoyed tempting fate and our own mortality. That is, when our mother wasn't doing it for us. Somewhere along the way, Diana picked up a new boyfriend, Bob. This was good news for us kids because she became distracted and absentee. But it wasn't great news for Paul, so he moved to California, leaving us exquisitely free from parenting. As the oldest, I tried to step into my rightful role as the leader, but this was met with great disapproval from my siblings, and we battled it out with violent and vicious rumbles, resulting in black eyes, bloody noses, and smashed up furniture. The one place where my siblings let me take my rightful place as their eldest sister was on our expeditions tromping through the glistening white snow deep in the hushed wonderland of the Oregon woods. We never fought in the wilderness. It was too beautiful, too quiet, and too pure. Besides, we spent half the time frightened for our lives, certain that we were lost or about to become dinner for some wild animal. And that's when I got to soothe and console with confidence because I had all the answers, even when I didn't. But I always got us home safely and sometimes before dark. There seemed to be a group of hippie women taking care of us, but it was hard to tell because so many people were coming in and out of the house and we were otherwise preoccupied with our sibling rivalries. But there was one lady in particular who came around a lot, and she wore purple dresses and reeked of red roses. The smell was the only thing I didn't like about her. The strong scent made my nose tickle and gave me headaches, and the fragrance would linger long after she was gone. Every time she came over, she made us Campbell's tomato soup and grilled cheese sandwiches, and she would sit at the table with us while we ate. I asked her once if she wanted to adopt us, or maybe just me. She said she would talk to my mother about it, but nothing ever happened. It was in this house that my mother told me there wasn't a real Santa Claus, and because of that, we wouldn't be having a Christmas that year. I just couldn't believe it. 
No Santa Claus? No Christmas? I cried and cried for a very long time, and my reaction took everyone by surprise. Diana looked as though she regretted having broken the news to me, and it wasn't her fault there wasn't a real Santa Claus, but of all the mean things she had ever said to me, this one made me hate her the most. And in hindsight, the timing of her confession made real sense. No Paul, no money, no Christmas. I very rarely participated in the naked dancing parties, but sometimes my sisters and brothers were having so much fun I just had to join in. On one such occasion, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band was playing on the turntable while my mother's boyfriend Bob was sitting on the couch. I'm sure my true intention was to be a show-off, because similar to my mother, I enjoyed the attention of men. My favorite song, the one about fixing a hole where the rain comes in, was the best for spinning and twirling around and around with eyes closed, because it kept my mind from wandering. Bob must have been watching, because he noticed and drew attention to a large lump in my groin area. I had never noticed it before, and it didn't hurt, but there it was, a hernia, to which he alerted my mother. This was a real-world concern, something she couldn't possibly handle by herself, so she called Paul. He was back in a heartbeat, and we packed up the bus, nodded quiet goodbyes to our sacred woods, the quicksand pit, and to the pretty lady who dressed in purple and smelled of a rose bush. We hit the road for Sacramento, California, where I was going to have my hernia operation. And with Paul at the helm, my mother reluctantly left Bob behind. On our journey south, we narrowly escaped death on the long and winding roads that hugged Mount Shasta. The bus was big and it could barely squeeze itself around the curves and bends or dodge the sudden protrusions of trees that would pop out of nowhere and attack the windshield. The tiny mountain road had a rock wall on one side and an excruciatingly steep invitation to death on the other. I turned my back to the window and drank with irony the carbonated fruit flavors of Shasta soda, black cherry being my favorite. Apparently, my hernia was not life-threatening because we took a detour through the majestic and awe-inspiring redwood forest. We posed for pictures in front of the hollowed-out trunk of a living tree, which was large enough to drive a small car through and wide enough to epitomize the gulf between Paul and Diana. Everyone was on his or her best behavior as I lay in the hospital bed recovering from the operation. I was allowed to eat as much ice cream as I wanted and was attended to by syrupy sweet nurses who pumped me full of drugs. The drugs were so wonderfully powerful that they made me feel as though happy days were just ahead. I looked lovingly at my family and thought maybe we had turned over a new leaf. I got my first taste of Sacramento on the day that I was released from the hospital. 
We ate a picnic lunch in a park that was brimming over with the city's multicultural vibrancy and rainbow excitement. You could tell immediately that Sacramento was a much bigger city than Cleveland. It wasn't divided by black and white, and there were people of every shade and color. Everyone in the park seemed happy, and so was I. The weather was warm and sunny, and without even noticing, we had shed the cozy, quiet winter of white rural America. We were going to live here now, so we moved into the projects. Compared to the dark gray desolation of the Cleveland projects, Sacramento was lively, loud, and energetic. The days were long and bright, and people were always out and about singing and dancing and socializing. R&B music was the soundtrack of the streets, and little old ladies would sit in their lawn chairs on tiny patches of grass, bobbing their heads and drinking lemonade as clouds and children went drifting by. Diana became the life of the party. She impressed everyone with her soulful dancing, and she sold penny candy out of a magical box that she kept in her room. The candy looked so beautiful and inviting, all lined up and organized by shapes and sizes. We weren't allowed to have any, but just looking at the box was good enough for dreaming. Diana's popularity didn't extend to Kathy, Tony, and me, and we had to run home every day from school to avoid getting beat up by a pack of vicious girls. And the terror didn't end when summer vacation started. We were so far behind in our education that we had to go to summer school, and as luck would have it, so did our aggressors. Not everyone hated us. And for the first time in my life, I had two best friends, a black boy and a Chinese girl. I sat in the bushes with the boy, holding hands, sneaking kisses, and feeling very naughty about it. He taught me the right way to dance to the Jackson 5 and how to make wishes on shooting stars. His mother was our babysitter, and I loved her just as much as I loved him. She was a very large woman who very rarely moved. And I took all my complaints to her because she would listen, nod, and chuckle. And then she would wrap me up in her warm black arms and let me nap on the squishy pillows of her gigantic breasts. Their apartment was a wonderland of heat, clutter, and a mother's rebellion. Piles of clothes were strewn everywhere, creating a soft padding for your feet and a cozy cushion for your rear end. I pretended it was my house because it felt like a comfortable palace of relaxation compared to where I lived. Diana was a fastidious housekeeper who hated clutter, so our homes were always clean and tidy and meticulously put together. Very early on a weekend morning, I headed off to Chinatown with my best girlfriend to attend Chinese school with her. I was excited even though I had no idea what to expect. The minute I walked through the old-fashioned doors of the rickety building, I felt a cold surge of unfamiliarity, and I was sure that I had made a very big mistake. I wanted to leave immediately, but I couldn't because we had been dropped off. The long and cavernous hallways were dark and dimly decorated with gold and red banners. 
In the distance, I could hear the chattering cacophony of a sharp foreign language. My friend took me by the hand and led me into a classroom. She went to her seat, and I stood standing for a minute, waiting for some direction from the teacher, who gave me a puzzled look and then pointed to an empty desk. The classroom was filled with Chinese children of every age. No one said hello, and the teacher never once acknowledged me. I felt completely self-conscious and yet invisible at the same time. But there was no turning back. I didn't want to embarrass myself by walking out of the classroom because where would I go anyway? I listened for clues to try and figure out what they were talking about, but it was impossible. They didn't speak one word of English, so for hours I just sat there staring off into space, lonely and bored, trying to figure out why I had thought this would be a good idea in the first place. By lunchtime, the day had taken a wonderful change of pace. We ate in the cafeteria where the Chinese people were starting to warm up to me. The cloak of invisibility that I was trying to hide behind slowly dissolved with each tiny smile and half nod that I was given by the teachers and the students. Apparently, I had passed some sort of test and I was now worthy of acknowledgement. The day ended with an assembly of immense proportions. The children gathered on stage wearing the uniforms of their ancestors while marching in a precise and orderly fashion to a loud Chinese static that resembled music coming out of bad speakers. They carried banners with pictures of dragons and tigers and twirled batons in a severe yet celebratory manner. I sat in my seat transfixed, still feeling alien, but enthralled by a culture so very different from mine. My skin had stopped crawling with uneasiness, but it had been a very long day, and I would be happy to get back to the projects where I didn't stand out as much. I found comfort in the anonymity of diversity. Without any warning, just as I had begun to settle into a life that made sense to me, we packed up the bus and left Sacramento.